0: Justin once said, what does love look like? It has the hands to help others. It has the feet to hasten to the poor and the needy. It has the eyes to see misery and want. It has the ears to hear the sighs and sorrows of men. That is what love looks like. Welcome to the 21st episode of St. Dymphna's Playbook, the SDP, if you want to be cool, a production of the Grexley Podcast Network. My name is Tommy Ty. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth, and one in heaven. Love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because we need to realize that real love means hearing the sighs and sorrows of others and then helping them to feel loved as we journey with them. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dymphna's Mentions. (laughs) First up, I've received quite a few questions about the process of actually becoming a mental health therapist, so for those interested, here we go. For me, it all started out my junior year of high school when I took an AP psych class that was being offered as an elective. I was absolutely hooked from the very beginning. Those of you who've taken any psych class probably remember all the classic things that typically get one hooked, the story of Phineas Gage, the Milgram experiment, the twin studies, all of it just got me so excited and made me wanna learn more. So like many therapists, I went to get my BA in psychology and after wrapping that up I quickly realized that a BA in psychology doesn't do a whole heck of a lot so I continued on for a master's in clinical psych basically after doing a psych BA if you want to go further in the field you either have to choose between research psych or clinical psych and I went the clinical route after you pick up your master's degree you begin to the long journey of collecting internship hours toward your license to do therapy and out here in California marriage and family therapists are required to work 3,000 hours prior to being able to sit for the licensure examination when you're collecting the hours as an intern you're pretty much doing therapy and actually it's a great thing for folks seeking therapy to know because interns usually come cheap and are under intense supervision to help guide them and help them know how best to help you Once you're licensed, you're the real deal, though it never quite feels that way since every person that walks through the door teaches you something new. And you go on having to renew your license every two years while collecting 36 hours of education and training each renewal cycle. So if you're interested, I would say go for it. Sure, I'm not making boatloads of money like my friends in the tech industry out here in the Bay Area, but I genuinely feel blessed to help people and I'm fascinated and intrigued every single day at work. It's just an absolute blast. Next up, Anonymous stopped by with a question that I think will resonate with a lot of us. I was curious as to your thoughts of how Memento Mori movement, the Memento Mori movement, as awesome as it is, can affect people with anxiety who often worry about death and losing loved ones. Before I start, in, in full disclosure, I have a skull on my workbench in the garage here, and my wife has a little memento mori lock screen on her phone, so I'm a fan. But I also recognize the issue of being focused uh, on or anxious with the idea of death for oneself or those we love. I mean, I'm actually acutely aware of it. After losing our son back in 2016, I spent much of my time perseverating on the idea that one of our other kids might die, and it became paralyzing at times. I find remembering my death to be a really helpful practice uh, of reorienting myself and my focus in life and where it needs to be. And I've even taken to sharing it with my kids. We have to remember that we only have a certain amount of time here on earth. We don't know how long it is. We can't predict when it'll be over. So we have to make sure that we are doing what God wants us to do while we're here so we won't be caught off guard when we find ourselves standing face to face with Jesus in the next 15 minutes. Uh, The words of Christ in Matthew 22, 44 come to mind. So too, you also must be prepared, for at an hour you do not expect the Son of Man will come that being said for many of us thinking about the, our mortality can be a cause of anxiety and panic and it may not be a healthy practice because instead of reminding us of the importance of every decision we make it freezes us and keeps us from doing anything at all this is why it's so important to know our triggers know what causes us to feel depressed anxious or flashback into traumas that we've had in the past and then to parse through things accordingly just because the practice of memento mori has become fashionable again or become a hot topic on Twitter Twitter doesn't mean we have to let it into our spiritual routine if we know the idea might cause us stress. We have to be willing to log off, mute topics that bring us anxiety, and be okay with missing out on some things for the sake of our mental health. And we have to remember that the spiritual practices that will bring us closest to God are the ones that best click with our personalities. Some find the rosary beneficial, others don't. And the same is true of the practices of Memento Mori. So we have to remember to be the person God created us to be. And find our path to Him with that in mind. So, each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request, and today I'm here to help you learn more about Saint Teresa of Avila. Teresa Sanchez de Cepeda y Ahumada was born in 1515 in Spain. She initially resisted her calling, but at the age of 18, she entered the Carmelite Convent of the Incarnation. Her father, Super Pious austere, was disappointed, mostly because the convent was known as a laid-back and easygoing place, but in retrospect, he had nothing to worry about. Teresa had a zeal for mortification to the point of almost dying, but through the intercession of St. Joseph, she was cured, and then immediately began to experience religious exorcism. She was known to levitate, ended up becoming an incredible reformer, an extensive traveler despite having given herself over to a life behind the grill, and today is known as a doctor of the church. And it has been noted that Teresa endured a prolonged and agonized illness, which from our present day knowledge seems to have been nervous in origin. While we can't look back and properly diagnose her today, we can say that she persevered through incredible suffering and mental anguish and lived a life that has us correctly looking back and identifying her as one of the most influential saints of our catholic history it's also worth pointing out that she once told the depressed sisters under her charge to go out for a walk rather than sit in the chapel meditating all day so you know she had some pretty sound therapeutic advice too we like to close out this part of the podcast with a prayer and today we're going to go with her own words to help bring us all some much needed peace and perspective let nothing disturb you let nothing frighten you all things are passing away god never changes patience obtains all things whoever has god lacks nothing god alone suffices amen and now you can't do therapy over twitter but i'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness it's time for twitter therapy Hector kicks us off. I've been practicing meditation through an app named Calm, and it has helped me manage my thoughts and emotions in a better way. However, I'm concerned it might push me away from my faith. As a therapist, what is your thought on breath-centered meditation and similar practices? Thanks for this one, Hector, because I know it's a question a lot of people have, and personally, I find it really unfortunate that there are some Catholics out there who write off mindfulness, meditation, and similar practices as wholly and automatically dangerous and unchristian. Let me be clear here. There are definitely forms of mindfulness, mindfulness, and meditation that would not be in line with our Catholic faith. These primarily focus on the person doing the practice of recognizing themselves as some sort of center of the universe or some sort of quasi-divinity, or involves the person trying to clear their mind of everything as a form of enlightenment or an end in itself. These would be the types of practices I would steer clear from. However, the overwhelming majority of mindfulness and relaxation exercises you might come across in therapy or the app you mentioned, which I've never heard of and didn't research or anything, are, are going to be safe to use as coping skills for anxiety, stress, racing thoughts, etc. as a Catholic. Let's take mindfulness as an example. The typical mindfulness exercises you'd get in therapy would help you to learn to focus on being in the present moment, using your senses to stay in that moment, What colors do you see? What sounds do you hear? What does the sensation of sitting in the chair feel like on your legs and your back? Those types of techniques help you to stay grounded, which can be very helpful for anxiety, racing thoughts, or symptoms related to trauma, and there's absolutely nothing about them that's contrary to the faith. I hope that helps. Emma stopped by next. I've struggled with depression and know others who have as well, and I love how much you incorporate Catholicism. Thank you. I'm starting to consider what my vocation is career-wise, and I've considered therapy, as people think I'm a good listener and often come to me for advice, and I personally think it's very valuable and helpful. There is some negative stigma toward therapy in my family, however, so I was curious if you had any advice. Do it! Okay, it's not that simple of course, but your experience and your presence would go a long way toward helping so many who are interested in seeking help, but have families who perpetuate the same kind of stigma. They would feel so heard, understood, and accepted by you as a therapist. You are the expert on your family, so only you know what approach would work and what approach wouldn't work. For example, in my family, I would ask something like, what are the things you've heard of or think about therapy that make it seem so negative to you? Most likely, there's some misinformation about what therapy is or what happens in therapy, or perhaps someone had a bad experience with a therapist, and that's colored things. In terms of looking into it as a career you would love, I'd start by looking into taking a psych class, perhaps abnormal psych, as it gives you a glimpse into what's going on inside of all of our heads, and see if it lights a fire for you. If so, you're going to have to come to terms with the need to balance your family's opinions and what you feel called to do. Hopefully some of the info I shared earlier in the podcast about my path to becoming a therapist gives a little light into the process if you decide to move forward. Go forward, covered in the prayers of everyone listening to this podcast who are going to join me right now as we pray for the Holy Spirit to make clear the path God wants you to take and to help guide you in your conversations with your family. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And finally, a question from Anonymous. How should we deal with a loved one who was previously suicidal when we feel like we're having to walk on eggshells in our relationship now? Let's start off by praying for the souls of every person who has died by suicide, especially those who have died in the last 24 hours, that God may make His mercy and salvation known to them in their final moments in a way known only to Him, and for all the family members left behind, those grieving the loss, and those who feel like they have to walk on eggshells around family members who have expressed suicidal ideation in the past or who are the survivors of suicide. Remember, O Most Gracious Virgin Mary, Suicidal ideation, suicide attempts, and death by suicide typically catch us off guard as loving friends or fan family members. When we look back, we can start to piece things together, things we feel like we missed, things we wish we would have done differently, but that's all looking back with hindsight, and while it's totally natural, it's a painful thing that we do to ourselves. When a friend or family member shares that they feel suicidal or survive suicide, we naturally feel scared. Scared it might happen again. Scared we might miss another clue that we're supposed to take to help them. Scared we might say or do something that triggers a return to feeling suicidal or, God forbid, an attempt again. At the same time, feeling like you're walking on eggshells, always scared you might say the wrong thing. Not only is that not a healthy way to be in a relationship with another, but the person being treated in this way feels it. People know when you're avoiding something or not being yourself or are worried and, curious, uh, and cautious about the interaction, and it can make them feel like an outcast, like they're broken. So let me start with this. There isn't anything that you can say that would pop the idea of suicide into someone's head, starting off a chain of events ending in their death. You shouldn't be worried about bringing the topic up. In fact, bringing it up if you're, worri- if you're worried about the person might actually help them and let them know that you care about them and that you aren't scared off by the experience. Next, uh, about that constant fear that if I get in an argument with my loved one or seem judgmental toward them that it'll lead to their suicide, it's really, really unlikely that an incident like that would drive someone to take their own life. In fact, it's much better to engage in conversations with them that are real and heartfelt, even if they're intense and leave people angry at each other. Myteam.org has a couple of pieces of advice that I thought were great as well. First, be available and let your loved one know you will listen. Listen helping to build or reestablish trust between you and the person you're concerned about. And second, remember that you do not have to fill the role of counselor, psychiatrist, or doctor yourself. Encourage your loved one to utilize the professional supports available to them. Gently encourage therapy, encourage support groups, encourage getting help, and allow yourself to shed those roles and focus on being a friend, a caring family member. It can be so hard to want to continue a relationship while at the same time feeling scared we might do something wrong, but I really believe being open and honest and transparent with our loved one can go a long way toward helping everyone feel better. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations if you'd like me to address them in the future. I'd be happy to keep you anonymous, or not, whatever you want. Be sure to check out patreon.com grexley to see all the great things they've got going on and support the cause. Until next time, go easy on yourselves, take care of yourselves, and if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry, I'll be praying for you, and so will St. Dymphna.